Before I read from Romans chapter 2, I want to remind you that the past two weeks, the Apostle Paul has assumed the posture of a prosecutor. You remember that? In Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul shows us that the pagans are given over to wickedness because they suppress us. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and God gives them over to this long list of terrible sins. And so they are guilty, and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all of those sins of those pagan people. But now, the prosecutor turns his sights on another group, and we pick up in Romans 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And what happens now is that the prosecutor turns his attention to another group of people and he argues that law-abiding, Bible-believing, religious types are alienated from God as well. You see, here's the thing. In Paul's world, there were lots of people who hear chapter 1 and they nod and they say, yes, why, yes, it is good that all those unwashed bad people will get the judgment that they deserve. Who is it that says that? Well, we are introduced to those people here. They are what we call the self-righteous moralist, the religious man who considers himself righteous above those unwashed common sinners out there. And Paul goes after them too. Who did he learn to do this from? Who else does that? Jesus. Jesus Christ. If you read through the Gospels, not just once, not just twice, But it seems all the time he's investing his energy in exposing the bankruptcy of the religious people of the day who look down their noses at the, with contempt, judging other people. And if you've ever studied the ministry of Jesus, you know that he goes to great lengths by portraying believing Gentiles as if they were the chosen people of God. And it drives the religious leaders crazy. 
Think about it. You know Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially. Remember in Luke 7, the sinful woman, she's called the sinful woman who washes the feet of Jesus with her hair and her tears. And Jesus condemns Simon the Pharisee. But this woman, he turns to her. He says, your faith has saved you. Do you remember when Jesus tells the story, we call it, of the Good Samaritan, but in the ears of those who hear it, it's not the Good Samaritan, it's the hated Samaritan in Luke 10. A Samaritan, puh! But he is the one who does the law of God while the Levites and the priests walk by and ignore the broken man on the side of the road. And then there's the Roman centurion, the Roman, the oppressors of our people. And the Roman centurion is commended for his faith by Jesus Christ, and he is told, you will seat at the banquet with Abraham. (gasps) And they gnash their teeth. And then there's Zacchaeus. Does anybody remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is the Danny DeVito of the New Testament. Remember, uh, who, who, who does he play? Louis De Palma. Louis De Palma on Taxi. Just the slimiest, greediest, meanest guy in town. And Jesus meets him and welcomes Zacchaeus and has dinner with him. And he calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. Drives him crazy. And then he tells the story. You have it there in your program in Luke, 9, Luke 18, 9 through 14. Look, listen to this. Follow with me. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. For I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And the Pharisees gnash their teeth. You know, uh, one of my mentors that I loved so much, a man named Jack Miller, would speak in conferences, and usually he would introduce himself this way. He would say, Hello, my name is Jack Miller, and I'm a recovering Pharisee. And, And you know what? I am too. I'm John Yenchko. And I am a recovering Pharisee. And why would Jack say that? And why would I say that? 
Because listen, we are all recovering Pharisees because the single greatest pleasure of a Pharisee was to judge other people, to see what's wrong with you and to look down my nose at you and lift myself up in my own righteousness, to look better. How deep does this run in me? It runs pretty deep. One of the godliest pastors that I know, a guy named Abe, he posted on Facebook about how he judges other people. And he said this, just this week, he said, I judge people on the New York City subway who just stand near the door and don't move to the center of the subway car. And I let it be known when I'm getting on the subway that I'm going to move to the center of the car and I make sure they know it. And he said, I judge those people. Who do you judge? For whom do you have contempt, O man? Romans 2, verse 3. It says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Let me tell you, this problem, this problem that Paul, the prosecutor, brings against the reader is not for those people out there. This is for the people in here. And I know there are people sitting in this room who have been wounded deeply and hurt by the contempt and the judgment of other Christians in other places. And I pray that this church will be a healing community for you, that we might be people of grace, but I know this poison of being the self-righteous moralist, it it is a germ inside every one of us. It's a poison in the church. After all, isn't that why I come to church? I come to church to become a better person, to become a nicer person than all those people out there. But you see, that's the danger. That's the danger. It's not why you come to church. You come to be like the tax collector who stood afar off and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How do I know? If this poison is in my soul, this moralistic, legalistic heart attitude, it's this. It's it's not just that I think God saves me because of my works. There is a web of attitude and heart and character that somehow believes God's love for me is conditioned upon my performance, my ethical goodness. And so if I avoid deliberately some of those sins the bad people do. And if I, you know, show up to church, they say church attendance has has decreased over the past decade. Church attendance has gone among faithful church members, has gone from about uh, three times a month down to 1.7 times a month. But if I at least can beat the 1.7 times a month average, why, God is pleased with me. How do I know if this is my problem? Tim Keller says this. He says, a moralistic, legalistic spirit leads to being judgmental. 
who do you judge? Harsh. Are you ever harsh? Overly sensitive to criticism. <laughs> How well do you take criticism from others? Deeply insecure and jealous of others because my sense of personal identity and worth is intertwined with my performance rather than resting in the work of Jesus Christ for me. And so that's point one. The prosecutor brings the indictment, not just against the bad people out there, but against those who judge in their heart, the self-righteous moralist. But then, in an amazing twist, he goes on in verses 6 through 16, to say to the self-righteous, morally superior people, you know, there are people who will be found on the judgment day who actually do what God wants. And it's not you. And when you look at verses 6 through 16, you see a few things. Let me just read them. You see them there under point number 2. Or I'll start in verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Picking up in verse 6. He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, that word self-seeking there, it's better translated, who are self-promoting, that's really what it means, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Wow. Verses 6 through 16 are very intense, okay? Let me just explain a few things here. It says that there will be people, they're called Christians, who actually do good works, who actually do the law of God. They carry out what God wants in His Word. He says it clearly in verses 6 and 7 and again in verse 10. Let me explain how it happens. Paul is drawing on Ezekiel chapter 36 where he says, even among the Gentiles they find the law of God written in their hearts. And there is a great ancient prophecy in Ezekiel 36. You see it there before you where he says, God, looking forward to the day of Christ, 
and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. That's what you need to hear. That's what's forming what Paul is saying here. And he says there will be people who will do good works that will be celebrated on that judgment day. But then he warns in verse 8 those people who are self-promoting. The the religious moralists, the self-seeking, really self-promoting people who do not obey the truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, he warns them with a terrible warning that they will suffer wrath and fury. And then he says, and it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Now, I think to those of us here, this makes sense, right? Because he's saying God is just. And if God is God, God is just. But to the people who are reading this, who are hearing this, there is something that just knocks them off their feet. And it's not that God is just. It's that he says, and it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. And it doesn't matter, because why? Because God shows, this is verse 11, God shows no partiality. And this is the thing that will drive some of the readers crazy. You know why? Because surely God distinguishes between the Jews and the Gentiles. What do you mean? There's no partiality with God. There are going to be Gentiles in heaven commended for their good work? you got to be kidding me. drives the Pharisees crazy. Now, there is something in this passage that's a puzzle to me, and I'm just going to lay it right out there. It's verse 13. Verse 13, it says, For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And yet, if you've ever read through the book of Romans, you know that chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5... All, uh, or Paul going on to explain that, well, he says in Romans 3.20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Hmm. Verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And I'm thinking to myself, Is this a contradiction? But what's going on here? And I hope, I hope that if you are half awake one third of the time in this church, you know that the foundation of our ministry is built upon the rich, lavish grace of God given to us freely through the person and work of Jesus Christ and is not contingent upon the performance that we might have, religious or otherwise. I hope you know that. But then you ask, what's verse 13 all about? 
And here's the key. To solve this puzzle, you just need to know that what Paul is saying is that there are people who are made new in Jesus Christ by His grace. And in fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, they are given a new heart by His gracious intervention, and they will delight in fulfilling the law. And what is the summary of the law? It is to love God, to love your neighbor. And He works that new reality. We call it sanctification inside of us. The keeping of the law is never the ground of our justification, but it is the evidence that will be celebrated on the judgment day. We're told in Ephesians, right, that God not only saved you by grace, but He appointed you to do good works. He did. That's what Paul is saying here. For that, that, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you now have a new heart, a part of flesh. That stony, hard heart has been changed out, and you get a new heart. You know, Martin Luther and John Calvin, who were the great champions, okay, Protestants here, Protestants, we don't use 2.13 to somehow teach you got to do penance, you got to perform, you got to say this many prayers, you got to do this. We don't buy that. They say you are justified by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, and He gets all the glory for your salvation. And yet, Luther said, We are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Okay, are you with me on this? It is always accompanied by the evidence of grace, good works, of keeping God's ways, loving God and loving others. And I just ask, is this you? Is this you? Do you have a new heart and a new spirit that now causes you to love God and to love Jesus Christ and to love people gladly, willingly? I hope so, or maybe today is the day (laughs) when the heart transplant happens. I hope for some of you that could be you today, the heart transplant happens today, where you trust Christ alone as we sang for your salvation. But something else is going on. This is point three on the back side of your outline. There's another thing going on here, and we need to understand some important threads in the book of Romans and, in fact, in the whole Bible to get our arms around what's going on here. And we need to understand the ways that God intends to use Gentile Christians in order to provoke and make jealous the self-righteous moralists and especially his Jewish friends and family. I read an article this week that I, helping me to understand this like I never had before, a man named Timothy Kaufman. And he says, to understand Romans and, and the threads of the Bible, you need to understand what, what he calls the jealousy storyline. And I'd never studied it before. And he says that when you analyze Scripture, there's this consistent storyline from Moses through Ezekiel uh, to Paul, through Jesus to Paul. 
in which the Jews in particular are driven to jealousy by the transfer of of blessings to the children of Abraham to the Gentiles. And yeah, it does make them crazy, but it also makes them jealous. And he relies on Deuteronomy 32. You know, I have to admit, I never carefully studied that later part of Deuteronomy 32. Paul, uh, before I get to that, Paul says in Romans 11, now, I know we won't get there for a year, so I'm giving you a preview now. Paul says, you see it in your program, so I ask, did, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, skipping ahead in verse 13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order, here it comes, listen, somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Now, Moses said this would happen back in Deuteronomy 32. Look at that, verse 16. First, God got jealous of Israel. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. And because they provoked God by their unbelief and disobedience, Moses prophesies that God will do the same thing to them. He will stir them to jealousy. Look at verse 20. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So, it's a purpose statement now, I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them with a foolish nation. And who is this foolish nation? Who is it? It's you. It's you. It's me. We who were not the chosen people of God. Now the blessings of the chosen people of God are lavished on the Gentiles. And the very list of Jesus, the Roman centurion, the sinful woman, the evil Zacchaeus, the publican, the tax collector... They are declared righteous in the eyes of God. And it provokes the Pharisees, but some it it makes jealous. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Mary and Mary Magdalene, and, and many others attracted to Jesus. You know, Blaise Pascal, the uh, great French mathematician, He says this, he he says essentially, you have to make people wish Christianity were true before you can prove to them Christianity is true. And Pascal understands the human heart. I have to confess, I have spent a lot of hours proving Christianity is true to people who didn't care at all. But God, in His providence, God makes 
people wish it were true. They see you and the attractive fruit of the Spirit of Jesus in you, and they say, I wish it was true. He acts like God loves him. She really believes her sins are forgiven. In the midst of her terrible circumstances, she has hope and is trusting in the Lord. I wish it was true. And then you come to them and you say, oh yes, my friend, it is true. Let me prove to you, of course it's true. And they come and they are saved. This is God's way. This is what he's doing now to these self-righteous moralists who look down their nose. He's saying, but there will be those people who are attractive and who draw people to Christ. Now, point four. We are all recovering Pharisees. We are all the self-righteous moralist facing the wrath of God. How do we escape? And the answer we are told is repentance and faith in the one who was truly justified by his works of the law, who then gives us a new heart to walk in his ways. And that's what he teaches us here. You know, last week, Martin, I listened to the sermon online, and uh, in one of his offhand comments, he says, you know, some of you, um, you think you're innocent. Like in the Shawshank Redemption, he said, you're like Andy du- you think you're like Andy Dufresne. He really was innocent. But every other prisoner in the jail says, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, but they're guilty, and so are you, Martin said. And that was very effective. But I want to tell you something. The movie, The Shawshank Redemption, shows you something far worse than you are one of the prisoners who's really guilty of violating the law of God. Because there's another character in The Shawshank Redemption, and in a twisted sort of way, I am drawn to the warden of the prison. You remember Warden Samuel Norton, dressed in a suit every day his hair perfectly in place. And he quotes the Bible inside out. He has a word for everyone in due season as he looks down upon his charges in the penitentiary there who are justly under his dominion. And he thinks that thieves should be punished and liars should be punished and murderers should be punished. And he's quick to quote the Bible to prove it. And as you watch the movie, you discover that he is the most despicable character Hollywood has ever produced. He is the vile hypocrite of hypocrites. He says thieves should be in jail, and he himself is a thief. And murderers should be in jail, and he oversees the elimination of undesirables. And when murder is condemned by him in that despicable moment at the end in cowardice. He murders himself. When the jig is up and his evil is exposed, and while Martin said that you are like the criminals who would be punished for their sins, I am here to tell you today 
that if you ever have been a hypocrite, if you ever have judged someone or looked down your nose at someone who was caught in a lie, but you yourself have ever told a lie, if you have ever judged someone for their sexual immorality, and yet you yourself, according to Jesus, have committed adultery with the lust of your own heart and your own fantasy or in your own actions, if you yourself have condemned a murderer, but you yourself, according to Jesus, have hated and called foolish another person in your heart of hearts, then you are not just like the prisoners in the Shawshank prison. You are the, bishop, you are the warden of the penitentiary, and you will be exposed, we are told, we are told you will be exposed. Do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think God is kind and nice and forbearing? Oh, yes, He is, but why? Not because He wants to congratulate you for your superior performance, but His kindness is meant, we are told in verse 4, to lead you to repentance. Repent! Join the tax collector who did not even lift up his eye to heaven and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you done that ever in your life? He's, this, this wrath is relentless. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed, not just against the bad pagans out there, but now against the moralist who congrat congratulates himself when on that day, verse 16 says, when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Just as the warden's hypocrisy was exposed, so will yours and so will mine be exposed for the world to see. So whether today you're a Romans 1 pagan, you know, drunkenness, immorality, disobedient to your parents, bringing shame on your family name, whatever, you know, yeah, yeah, you need to repent. But if you're a Romans 2 sinner, warden of the Shawshank prison, you too need to know that God's kindness is to lead you to repentance. Because Christianity is not about niceness. Christianity is about newness. He wants to take away your heart of stone that looks down on others with contempt and fill you with a heart of mercy and grace and love. Are you that kind of attractive person? Listen, let's repent today. Join me. Get in line behind me. Any other recovering Pharisees here, get in line behind me and repent. Let's all be recovering Pharisees, okay? And then let's be grateful for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was the doer of the law and took the penalty on the cross for your transgressions, whatever they be, and my transgression, and bring your sins to the foot of the cross, and there receive the new heart again today in Ezekiel 36.
And people will know that you are a Christian by your love. They will know. They will see. Not all of them, but who in your family, who in your workplace, who in your neighborhood, who in your school is attracted to Jesus because of you. We're going to pray right now. We're going to join our hearts, and we're going to pray and ask God for that divine privilege and divine appointment that others would be attracted to Jesus through us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I am the first in line to say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I pray you would cleanse me and my friends from all unrighteousness, that, that contempt that looks down on others, people whose politics are different from mine, people whose skin color is different from mine, people who, who screwed up, maybe in a way I didn't, people who stand on the edge of the subway car by the door. Oh, Lord, we want a new heart, a heart that says, be merciful to me through your cross and make me then to love you and to love others. And we pray right now, and I invite you to pray this, Lord, would maybe this week would you give me a divine appointment to share with someone who wishes that Christianity were true. And I could then show them, oh yes, yes, it's true. And there is grace, oceans of grace to those who humble themselves at the cross of Jesus. How we thank you for Jesus, the just, the sinless one, whose righteousness is now clothing us, an alien, external righteousness, not of my own that comes from the law, a righteousness received by faith. We believe in you today, Lord Jesus Christ. And since we believe, so now energize us with your love that the world will see and fall in love with you. In Jesus' name. Amen.